Revelation in your Bibles, chapter number 20, clearly, obviously, getting to the very end of this book, perhaps another one or two more at the end, and so Revelation chapter 20, and we'll begin reading verse 1, and I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. Father, help us again as we open your word and consider and study and read and hear what the Spirit saith to the church. Please help us to know the meaning of these things and what they mean for us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. It was, as you know, the Apostle Peter who wrote in his epistle that the, the devil, the adversary, walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It was the Apostle Paul who said that Satan the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, that Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the truths of the gospel. So what we know from these and several other scriptures, of course, is that Satan is a problem. That Satan is a force of evil in this world. And this is why Ephesians 6 still commands those who have been delivered out of the kingdom of darkness those of us who are saved and no longer children of Satan, we are still commanded to take, quote, the whole armor of God so that we can quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, that we'll be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. It is also why chapter 20 of Revelation, a chapter that describes 1,000 years of global peace, begins with the binding of the devil. When I say binding, this is no televangelist saying, I bind you, and and that televangelist is full of uh, devil doctrines himself. This is the angel from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit. And that pit is going to serve essentially as death row, Satan's death cell, for the next 1,000 years. Verse 3 says, And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him, that so that he should deceive the nations no more. That means the nations are being deceived right now. I got news for you. This nation is being deceived by the devil. But not there. He should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed or let loose a little season. So, all right, here's the picture. We've been studying this the past several weeks, except for last week's hurricane. Satan is gone, the beast is gone. The false prophet is gone. All the unbelievers at this point are now gone. And Armageddon is over. So now what? Does everybody just get to go to heaven? Well, no. Not in our view of eschatology. Verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them. And judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ 
a thousand years. For those, one thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him, here it is again, a thousand years. Over and over again, 1,000 years is mentioned just in this one chapter. Now, most of you here tonight are very familiar with the teachings in the Bible that, verse 6, Christians are priests of God and will reign, rule with the Lord Jesus Himself for 1,000 years. Matter of fact, if you look carefully, there are basically three groups of people mentioned by John. Number one, those who sit upon thrones and judge, called saints, Number two, those who reign with Christ, tribulation martyrs. And then really, number three, those who do not reign with Christ because they're going to stay in the grave. The second death doesn't have power over them, but they're in the grave for the next 1,000 years. In other words, there's a resurrection at the rapture seven years before this. Our loved ones over there in Riverside and elsewhere. And there will be another resurrection, but not for 1,000 years. So the question is, Since we know that the second group are tribulation martyrs who get to reign with Christ, they were beheaded, they gave their lives, they didn't take the mark of the beast, who's the first group? Well, folks, you don't have to guess. The Bible calls them saints in this chapter, which is exactly what Paul calls the believers, for example, at Corinth. And in fact, all believers, when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? 1 Corinthians 6.3 says, Know ye not that we shall, we're not doing it now, judge angels. And then in a more specific location geographically, I'll remind you our Lord promised the apostles in Matthew chapter 9. I'm going to put that one on the board for you to see it. Verse 28, Jesus said unto them, Verily, I truly I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of His glory. What is the regeneration? New heaven, new earth. The kingdom. Here it is. Look at it. Those who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of His glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone, everyone, that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands, for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold, and here it is, and shall inherit. There's an inheritance coming of this everlasting life. Now, I have a question for those who are all millennial, and there aren't as many these days as used to be at the turn of the century. When did this take place? And dozens of other scriptures just like it. Well, it hasn't taken place, but it will. It will occur for a thousand literal years. And you know, the Apostle John, who will speak further about this in the text ahead, and certainly the Old Testament, so many verses, I almost brought them with me and read them here, and the Gospels speak in great depth about this wonderful, wonderful time. What do you think it means when it says, the lion and the lamb shall lie down together? That a child will die at a hundred years of age, and people say it was so young. A child. All of those Old Testament scriptures that they're just sort of symbolic and just whisked away. For now, I want you to look at chapter 20 and verse 3 again. 
It says, and they cast Satan into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him. That he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. After that, he must be loosed a little season. Well, I have a question. Why? Man, it's been a thousand years down there. Why? Look at verse 7. And when the thousand years of this wonderful time, so prophesied in the Bible, Jesus rules and reigns, the kingdom is back. When the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. Now, we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago in our study that for a specific reason, God has chosen to release Satan for a very brief time. God has a reason for everything he does. Verse 8, it says, And Satan, and he shall go out to deceive the nations, nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up in the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city, that's Jerusalem, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Well, that was a quick rebellion. It's like, all right, I'm back. Follow me. They do. <laughs> Done. This is not the battle of Armageddon. This whole thing ends just as soon as it started. So why, why lose him? Well, it does serve this purpose. It serves to reveal for all of eternity the true hearts of men. These are men undoubtedly moved as far away as they could from Jerusalem where Jesus was. And as long as Jesus was ruling and reigning, the Bible says, with a rod of iron, if you say so much as thou fool in the kingdom, you're in danger of hellfire. When does that happen? When you get banished immediately. Well, during the kingdom. These people who are behaving because they don't want to, you know, be in danger of hellfire. They're behaving themselves. But the rebellion and the unbelief is still in their hearts. You understand that they were, these are people that were born at the beginning of this 1,000 years. The only world they've ever known is paradise, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. And yet there will be multitudes, as many as the sand as the sea, there will be multitudes of people who will still have rebellion in their hearts. They cannot, and you can't today, they try. You can't blame your environment. You can't blame God. You can't blame anybody. This is going to give the proof rebellion in the hearts. And of course, there couldn't be a heaven, beloved. Heaven would be ruined if one soul was allowed into eternity that had rebellion in their hearts. So yes, the fire comes down from heaven. It is also a reminder that Outward actions, living right on the outside, which is what they're going to do for centuries because they haven't been banished, is not enough to reform that one person you can't allow into heaven. It is still true you must be born again. There has to be a regeneration, even in the regeneration. Verse 9, And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about. And... The beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. That's the end. Isn't it amazing, too, that after a thousand years, in fact, thousands of years, 
And then after the millennium itself, it is still Jerusalem. Think about that. It's still Israel that Satan is after. Now, granted, Jesus is there. The apostles are there. The kingdom is being run from there. And that was the current reason here, in part. But still, you recognize that the problems in Jerusalem in our day, the problems in Jerusalem 100 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, it's as if Jerusalem is the center of the universe. Well, it is. You can take the entire vast universe and go down to one little pinprick of that universe, not just planet Earth, but one spot on planet Earth. That little spot is Jerusalem. That is the place where Jesus, the creator of the world, was crucified. That is the place where he was buried. That is the place where he was resurrected. That is the place from which he ascended. That is the place from which he will come back and stand on the Mount of Olives. It has always been the center of God's redemption. That's why Satan hates Israel. It's not because Jews are awesome. It's because God's promises to Israel are awesome. And if he can keep God's promises from coming true, it's going to mess the whole thing up. And maybe he's got a victory. Verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast in the lake of fire. That's not the bottomless pit. The devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. For all the false teachers out there that say hell is eradicated, the beast, or that you're eradicated, the beast and the false prophet are still there after a thousand years. Can you imagine the fury of Satan having been bound for a thousand years? In the bottomless pit now. And all that time plotting his revenge with rage, he comes out, he's loosed by God, to deceive the nations again. But this is the end of him. And this time, this verse, this place, it is forever and forever. And that, as Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41, in the place that was prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell is a literal place that endures forever. Verse 11, and I saw, John says, and I saw, okay, after that, a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. Note this carefully. White, we all know this, is a symbol of purity. The great white throne is the place where God in His purity, in His holiness, will judge all the people of the earth. Can you even imagine, this is the scene he just printed, that John sees, he says, can you even imagine that heaven, the planets, the stars, Heaven and earth somehow recede from view. And there you are. Not you. There is a man or a woman standing before God. There's no time and no space. No planets. No earth. The picture is just you and the holy God. Recently in teenage Sunday school, we talked about 
the books of verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great. In fact, we mentioned it in church here not long ago. Stand before God, and the books, plural, the books were opened. And another book was opened. So that's books is two, another book makes three. There's at least three, maybe more. Which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Three books, at least, are mentioned in this verse. One's identified. One is identified as the book of life. One being the word of God itself. We could go into that. Verse 13 says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. Pastor, is John saying that a man's good works might earn him favor? And deliver us from the judgment of God? Oh, no, 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 no. No, the only thing that earns you favor is what he says next. Verse 14, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, wait a minute. Remember that the books were open and then another book was open, which is the book of life. That is the book, beloved, the only book that guarantees eternal salvation. And you get your name in that book by faith. But not just faith. Faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Is my name written there on the page bright and fair? In the book of God's kingdom is my name written there? We all know this, I've stated it so many times from the pulpit here, that when Jesus sent out the disciples and preaching in the surrounding cities, they came back and they were all elated. They were jumping up and down and they were all excited because they said, the demons are even, the demons are subject unto us. I bind you, Satan, and all of that. And the Lord Jesus said, no, 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 no. He said, do not rejoice because the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. I want to tell you something tonight. If we really got a glimpse of this scene right here, I've been thinking about this since the hurricane Wednesday. If we really saw and could see what's happening in this moment in eternity future and get a sense of the contrast between being witnesses to the throne, eyewitnesses as God's people, or being the judged, the indicted at that throne, we would do exactly what Jesus said. We would rejoice that our names are written in heaven. We would be rejoicing tonight. We would leave this place absolutely jumping for joy and gladness. And you know, all of the things that we think are so critical and so important would just fade into insignificance. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I was once a sinner, then I came, pardoned to receive from my Lord. This was freely given, and I found that he always kept his word. There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Oh yes, it's mine. And beloved, this is the reason, this is the whole reason why we're here tonight. 
This is, the only, this is the reason why God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that Christ came, bled, suffered, died, and was resurrected and ascended to the Father. After all, it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. Which brings us to chapter 21. I want to remind you again that this earth during the tribulation, we've, you've studied it with me, it is going to be wrecked. The judgments, the vials, the bowls, the trumpets, it's going to be ruined. In many ways, God says it's already waxing old like a garment even now. In other words, as beautiful and amazing as glorious as creation is now, and creation still testifies to the glory of God. It does. It's beautiful. It is nevertheless scheduled for a purging. Peter talked about that. Ultimately, a complete destruction. And it's interesting that even in verse 1 of chapter 21, you have a hint as to why God will do this. Look at it. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Pastor, what do you mean no more sea? I love the ocean. I love it. You know what? So do I. It's beautiful. But let me read something that I came across a while back from a little science book. Over 70% of the surface of our world is covered with salt water. The average depth of the ocean is 2.3 miles. Why does our planet need such a massive covering of salt water? Answer, to cleanse the earth and make life possible. The earth is bathed in God's great antiseptic solution composed of about 96% water, 3.5% salt, and about 0.5% trace constituents, chlorine, magnesium, calcium, and such. The salty brine of the ocean purges, cleanses, and preserves our planet, making it fit to live in. Many of the pollutants and waste we produce get washed out of soil, in the streams, rivers. Others we deliberately dump into the rivers. The rivers wash these materials to the sea. The antiseptic salinity of the sea absorbs, scrubs, and breaks down these pollutants and wastes. The sun heats the sea, causing only pure clean water to vapor to float up into the sky, forming clouds, bringing refreshing rain back to the land, a continuous cycle of cleansing and renewal. The ocean's a miracle. Water's a miracle. Do you know that there, that whatever amount of water exists now has always existed for thousands of thousands? You can't destroy it. We know that heaven's going to have water, but it doesn't have to purify. We've read in the Bible that heaven's going to have rivers. We read a sea of glass. What is not needed is our massive ocean with its cleansing qualities. That's what John sees. Once again, reminding us of the tribulation period and Satan's last hope. You realize that, right? You can kind of see it now. In fact, you can see it now. Man's desperation about we have, this is all we have. And if we can't save this one, we got to create rockets that'll go to another one. Take your babies there. Start a whole new place. But Satan wants this world, but neither he nor anyone else is going to have it. You see, folks, what the Bible and the book of Revelation means by the word new in verse 1 isn't just new in time, it's new in kind. It's new. We live in a townhouse that's new. In fact, 
I watched it under construction. By there a couple times a week. It's new. You might say brand new. But this morning there was a leak in the wall. Plumbing behind the wall. And all the way down, down to my garage, dripping through my garage. And I had to call plumber after plumber after plumber after plumber. It was plum- plumber number 15 that finally didn't say two weeks, one week, two weeks, one week. I shut the water off. My mom needs to use the, the sink, okay? So do I, for that matter. And this guy said, I'll be right there. And he came, knocked the wall out. Now I got a big hole in my wall, but it's fixed. Brand new! That's our idea of new. You have a new iPhone, it won't be new in six months. Because you'll want the new one. The S, whatever. This is, this is new different. I remind you what Isaiah said when he said, The former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. Now I love a beautiful sunrise and the mountains, and the fall leaves. Just look outside those beautiful fall leaves. I love this earth, creation. But God says, I'm not even going to remember it. The former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. And the reason is the glory and the perfection of the new. It's all we're going to know. I recognize and I do believe that the Word of God teaches that God himself will help us in this not remembering. The Bible says that God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. God's going to do that. I remember years ago, I was flying to uh, Knoxville from PBI, many, many years ago. And I was going to preach up there, and just before I started to board the plane, this man who's taking the tickets he says, I know you. And I said, you do? He says, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a, I'm a preacher. He said, oh. He said, have you been on television? I said, nope. That's before live stream. This is a face for radio. Amen? <laughs> so, but when I said I'm a Baptist preacher, he took my boarding pass and he upgraded me to first class. And I'd never been in first class. Ever, ever, ever. And when I sat down, man, I, I could see why. And instead of going to seat 129D, I was like on 1A. And these big leather seats, like thrown, big wide armrests, and they brought me real food. Not, you know, a Fig Newton. And they closed the curtain, the riffraff back there, the nobodies. And I was like, yeah, whatever. The interesting thing is, while I was sitting there, the coach, 129D, didn't even come into my mind. I was enjoying it so much, I, I didn't, that's what a, how quickly I became a snob. <laughs> Those people didn't matter. In some ways, this is in a way what heaven itself and the new heaven and new earth is going to be like. It is going to be so wonderful. There's not going to be any nostalgia, okay, for the old earth. And plus, as it says in verse 4, God himself We'll do something with our remembrance. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. Here it is, for the former things are passed away. When God wipes the tears away, you know, when you wipe a tear from the face of your child, you can't wipe away their memory of what caused the tear or what's going to happen to bring another tear. But see what God is saying here? No more death, no more sorrow, no more... He wipes away the memory of what caused that tear. 
and any other future reason in eternity that might bring a tear. You say, Pastor, why are we weeping at this scene? Why are people crying that God has to wipe away their tears? Well, just remember what we just read, the great white throne judgment in verse 15. This is it. This is, this is the final goodbye to anybody and everybody. Naturally, there are going to be tears. Naturally, God himself will wipe them from our eyes. Which brings us to a very important word. Verse 2 says this, And I, saw, and I John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared. There's the word. We're going to close with this. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Where does that word prepared sound familiar? John 14. Jesus said, I go to prepare. He said it. I go to prepare a place for you. Hebrews 11, verse 16 says, They desire a better country, that is, a heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He hath prepared for them a city. Wait a minute, a city? Yes. Hebrews 11, 10 says that Abraham sought for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You understand that there is a new heaven a vast, infinite universe, greater than the current one, there is a new earth, infinitely greater than the current one, and there's going to be a new city, a new Jerusalem. Literally. The capital city of heaven at that time. It is a city that descends to the new earth and becomes a part of it, the crown jewel of heaven, if you will. Pastor Blake, how does a city... Described in this, these verses, by the way, as a cube. Think of a Rubik's Cube, all right, without all the colors. How does a city described as a cube descend out of heaven and becomes intact to a sphere? How does that work, Pastor? I can tell you how it works. Perfectly. How, Pastor? I don't know. You know, I, Albert Einstein used to say, make it simple but not simpler. In other words, Einstein believed in making physics as simple as possible, but he always admitted that creation itself is so complex and wonderful, there has to be another dimension. It's not simpler than he can make it. And so he loved to study and think about light and space and time. But always coming to this conclusion that he's missing something. The greatest minds who've ever lived are missing something. Well, they're all missing something. Right now, in some sort of stationary orbit, there are 4,527 satellites around this Earth. Did you know that? You can go on, there's a website that names every single one of them and who sent them up and so forth. 4,500 plus orbiting. That's the puny works of men. And out there somewhere, there's the International Space Station where people live. What God describes in verses 2 and 3 is not science fiction. It is real. A giant literal city hovers in the sky over the earth, and we will live there. Verse 3, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle, that means dwelling place of God, is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. 
And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Some of you in this room right now as I speak are in pain. You're in chronic pain. This is a promise. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. All things new, Pastor? Yes, totally new. Totally different. Verse 23, look at it quickly. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Without a sea, without the sun, without the moon, this is a place that is not subject to the laws of gravity or rotation or anything else that we know today. It's perfectly suited for our glorified bodies. Let me say this in closing, my second closing. Remember what Jesus said? Exactly what he promised? Because this is vital. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. First of all, I go. Jesus says, I'm doing this. Why is that important? Because Jesus came down here as a man. He ate food. He enjoyed the beauties of creation. He knew what it was to rest. I'm doing this. I know how to build a city for you. Not for the angels. I go to prepare a place for you. You notice it says that there are 12 great gates that surround the city and there's three on each side. Do you know that that also is new? Of course, John says what? Unheard of. The purpose of walls and gates in this world and in John's day was to keep intruders and enemies out of the city. That's because, and that's why in John's day there was one gate. There was one gate into the city and it's always shut and it's made of the strongest wood or the strongest iron. But here, John says he sees three gates on every single side of the city. Look at verse 25. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. Now wait a minute. I mean, I'm not Albert Einstein, but I can figure this out. If the gates are never shut by day and there's no night there, what does that mean? Yeah, the gates are never shut. You're as smart as I am. So that means all 12 gates from all four directions are always open. Why? So that anybody and everybody can go in and out at any time. Who's going to go in and out, Pastor? Verse 26. They shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or maketh a lie. But they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. On this new earth are nations, groups of peoples said to be traveling. This is mentioned in Zechariah, the prophecies. These people will come into the new Jerusalem and bring their glory and worship with them. So that this is essentially a vast Garden of Eden, where people will work and explore all the wonders of God, just as Adam did. And the new Jerusalem will be the capital city. It's described in verses 15, 16, and 17 as a cube. We're not going to read it for now. 
It reminds us of 1 Kings 6.20, which describes the Holy of Holies, right? How many of you know this? As a perfect cube. Well, that's what the New Jerusalem is, folks. It is the dwelling place of God. And may I say, the description of this city that's 1,400 miles high, just read the cubits. I want to put that in perspective. The Earth's atmosphere is 100 miles high right now. This is 14 times higher than that, and then it says it's squared. So it was Dr. Stoner who calculated that if you estimated how many billions and billions of people have been saved throughout all of the centuries of the general population, and you go extra high, he said the city would be big enough, just a city, to give every person 40 square miles each. That means I don't have to live near Barry Rodden. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Neither does, neither does Marissa. God bless her. And folks, this is just the city. That's just the city. Heaven and earth, another matter. The point is, this is a place that is prepared. Just like you have a body, you will have one that is prepared. Let me say one more thing, my third closing, okay? Everybody here has unique tastes. Some people in this room like to drink orange juice while you eat pancakes and syrup. Not me, that's gross. Drink orange juice after syrup just short circuits my brain, okay? Some people put sugar on their grits. That's a sacrilege in my world. You men know that it's not a good idea to go shopping for your wife on, the, on her anniversary or her birthday or whatever, and you buy something that you want. Louise always said, don't give me anything that plugs in. Okay, that eliminates a lot of stuff. And you don't do that because it's not about you. Ayla turns 13 on Friday. Can you believe that? Ayla. For her birthday, I didn't get her a new putter that I love. <laughs> I got her a travel version of a Penn Battle Three fishing rod and reel that she loves. That she loves. You ever get someone a gift and they say, man, that is exactly what I wanted. Or that is exactly what I wanted to do. Well, folks, think about it. Just think about this for a minute. David said about heaven, in thy presence is fullness of joy, and at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. For eternity, pleasures in heaven? Yes. Look at chapter 22. This is at my fourth closing, verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clean as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was the, the tree of life which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Can I ask you a question? Why? What is the purpose of this fruit tree? It bears twelve kinds of fruits, one for every month. That's like Harry and David's Fruit of the Month Club. Which is awesome, by the way, if you're wondering about Christmas. But what's it for? It's for pleasure. Pastor, I don't like fruit. You're going to love this fruit. I mean, for some people, it's, it's, your body is prepared for what Christ has made. And I, I guess for some people, it'll taste like what you think is awesome. Krispy Kreme donuts over here, country fried steak and gravy. I don't know. I like them both. So, Say, so how do you know that, Pastor? You're prepared and it's prepared. 
God created pleasure. This is all through the Bible. Satan corrupts it. Satan corrupts what is good. Fortunately, back in chapter 20, verse 27, and there shall in no wise enter anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie. Nothing bad. Perfect, sinless enjoyment of God. Verse 2 again says, In the midst of the street and the side of the river, there are leaves for the healing. Why healing? The Greek word is therapeia. We get the word therapeutic. So in other words, what John sees here, this is tree, and of which this tree, even the leaves somehow enrich the eternal heavenly existence. Just as eating itself enriches heaven. Beloved, we don't have to eat in heaven. So why are we going to do it? You don't have to drink in heaven, so why is there a pure crystal river of water? What's it for? Let me ask you this question. Why did Jesus resurrected and glorified in his glorified body, sit down and eat fish. He didn't need it. He didn't have to do it. No, much of heaven is created. It's beauty, it's food, it's water, it's very design. It's for sheer joy and pleasure in God. Both the pleasure of God and the pleasure of God's people. Everybody in this room is unique. What's beautiful to you may not be beautiful to me or the person sitting next to you. I don't like liver and onions. Never have. Anybody here like liver and onions? Nothing that defileth will go into the kingdom of heaven, okay? <laughs> I don't like the New England Patriots. Some, people, some of you do. What's beautiful, to, fortunately, what's beautiful to God is going to be beautiful to all of us. He knows. Jesus knows. When we see him, John says, we shall be like him. And this is why the beginning of this book, the book of Revelation, starts out right in chapter 1 with the words, Glory and dominion forever and ever be to Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, and behold, he cometh with clouds. Yes, there's tribulation coming, he says. Yes, that's for seven years. You got that? Seven years. Yes, there are scorpions that are going to come and ascend and torment. Remember what it says? Five months. Yes, the beast and the false prophet will come and they're going to deceive. But what does it say? Forty and two months. Yes, Satan will be loosed again. But what does it say? For a short time. But this is forever and ever. In the city of Milan, there are three ancient arches. They have very famous inscriptions. One is a, is a, an inscription of roses. And it says underneath, all that which pleases is but for a moment. The other is the inscription of a cross. And it says, all which troubles us is but for a moment. And the third, which is the main arch in the middle... It says that only is important, which is eternal. And heaven is eternal. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We need to not only hear, to not only learn, to not only understand, Father, but we need to believe that if it were not so, Jesus would have told us. He has gone to prepare a place for us that where he is, there we may be also. And if it were not so, he would have told us. Help us to believe your promises. And in believing, 
It changes our lives to live godly, bold, joyful testimonies here and now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Glad you're saved. You're dismissed. God bless you. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact us through our website at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's beaconbaptistchurch.org. May the Lord bless you.